The scripture reading today is Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, gang. How are you? Doing well? Awake? You ready? Ready to be in the presence of the Lord and study his word together? Hey, um, let's pray and start our time in the study of the word, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, you are mighty to save. And it's not just um, the huge and massive and, and life-giving deliverance from sin and death, but, but the fact that, that that news has catapulted us into your presence and has uh, made us sons and daughters when we believe in you and your work, Jesus, and that we have a seat at your table, and more than that, that we can reflect your great love in our lives in every nook and cranny of what we do day in and day out. We're here, Lord. We depend on you. We need you. We want to know you better through the study of your word. So bless us with your presence and your power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been looking this fall uh, in our home meetings and then also on Sundays at the gospel. And what we've said is that just as a bomb needs a detonator for the explosive power of the bomb to be released into the world, so our spirituality, our faith needs the gospel, the good news of the gospel to explode into our lives with power uh, for us to have any difference, see any difference in our lives. Have you, have you ever spent time wondering, well, what difference does the gospel make or what difference does faith make? So we've been looking at that this fall. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about worship that I find about worship, I, I, I don't know if you find it too, but is when you come in, it's hard to strip off the details of the last week and what happened at work and every pressure that you faced. And then Monday morning starts tomorrow. So all of the pressures that you face with work then. And one of the things that we try to do really hard when we come into worship is silence all of that and still ourselves and be quiet before the Lord to learn from and hear him clearly. I'm going to do something a little controversial at the moment. I'm going to ask you to take a full minute. I'm going to time it on my watch. I'll say Go. And I'm going to ask you to do the exact opposite. I want you to stir yourself up about every concern you have this week. I want you to think about it. I want you to fret about it. I want you to be anxious about it. Are you ready? Set, go. Okay. Now listen to the story that was as an op-ed piece in the New York Times in March, on March 10th, 2013. At an office party in 2005, one of my colleagues asked my then-husband what I did on weekends. She knew me as someone with great intensity and energy. Does she kayak, go rock climbing, and then run a half marathon, she joked. No, he answered simply, she sleeps. And that was true. When I wasn't catching up on work, I spent my weekends recharging my batteries for the coming week. Work always came first, before my family, 
friends, and marriage, which ended just a few years later. In recent weeks, I have been following with interest the escalating debate about work-life balance. Since I resigned my position as chief financial officer at Lehman Brothers in uh, 2008, amid mounting chaos and a cloud of public humiliation only months before the company went bankrupt, I've had ample time to reflect on the decisions that I made in balancing or failing to balance my job with the rest of my life. The fact that I call it the rest of my life gives you an indication where work stood in the pecking order. I don't have children, so it might seem that my story lacks relevance to the work-life balance debate, but like everyone, I did have relationships, a spouse, friends, and family, and none of them got the best version of me. They got what was left over. I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. Each year that went by, slight modifications became the new normal. First, I spent a half an hour on Sunday organizing my email, to-do list, and calendar to make Monday morning easier. Then, I was working a few hours on Sunday. Then, all day. My boundaries slipped away until work was all that was left. Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. That was written by uh, a woman named Erin Callen. What we're going to look at today, friends, is that the Lord wants you to do for your work. The Lord wants your work to flow from who you are in him. The Lord wants what you do for your work to flow from who you are in him. And he doesn't want the opposite. He doesn't want it to be uh, who you are in yourself to flow from your work. All right? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the three questions. What should be done about what the Lord wants to do with us in our work? We're going to look at the fact that you're not to work. The Lord says, don't work in a way that is temporary or fleeting. He also says, don't do work. Do work in a way that has lasting impact and enduring value. And then finally, he says, do work in a way that flows out of the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Okay? So let's get started. Um, The first thing, do not work in a way that is temporary or fleeting. Look, in verse 19 and 20, what does it say? How does the Lord's command read? It's interesting. He doesn't say don't work. He says lay up for yourselves, right? In both verse 19 and 20. It's a command about your work. There are two ways to do your work, he says. There's a way that you can do your work with impermanence in verse 19 on earth, or there's a way that you can go about doing your work that has permanence, verse 20, in heaven. But the laying up part is there. Do you see that? Is that surprising to you? Is it surprising to you that Jesus speaks to you about the work that you do and says there are two ways to do it? You're either going to go about this work that you do with permanence or impermanence. And he says, don't do it in a way that uh, caters to the impermanent. Uh, One of the things that we'll see uh, in verse 19, the on earth part, is the results that you're working for in your job are often temporary and fleeting. Um, Everyone has a way of looking at the world, for example. Everyone. You can't escape it. 
You're a product of culture. You have cultural assumptions. You have cultural world. It's called a worldview. Everyone has a way. And that's true of culture as well. It's not just true individually, but it's true culturally. We as a church, for example, have a way that we look at things, a way that we look at the world. Your work culture has a way that it intersects. It looks at things. It looks at the world. The culture of your work, whatever you do, whether you're an artist or a photographer or a musician or a service, uh, so work in the service industry some way or work as a social worker or work as a school teacher or work as whatever you do, the culture of your work has some purpose behind it, some movement towards a goal. Now, usually that goal is money. Usually it is. Sometimes it's not, but usually it's money. The purpose behind the work is to work towards a goal, more money, the bottom line, right? And usually there are problems towards working at that purpose, at that goal. Some barrier to be broken down or broken through in order to reach the goal. And again, usually money. And some solution that the culture of work comes up with. Some way to go about resolving the problem and usually that's the way the work is done. The way that I do the work is aimed at the, the problem of, that stands in the way of us making more money. That's our goal. That's our aim. We want the work that we do to get us more. Right? Now, what I want you to do as you think about this week and you go into your week is ask this question. What is the main purpose of the work that you do? What goal does it seek to fulfill? I want to challenge you that if you let this go unexamined, whether you're spiritually seeking or whether you're a Christian, you're going to slowly become what you do rather than letting what you do flow out of who you are. It's going to happen slowly. It'll happen over time, but it'll happen, just as Aaron Callan wrote about. Now, that's the purpose of your work. What about the problem? What problems stand in the way what you can do this, this week as you, as you think about your work and going into your work is you can say, what are the problems that need to be resolved or accomplished towards the goal that I'm working for? What's the barrier to be broken through? How does my culture of work answer that question? Now, the problem is, is that Jesus says the usual answer, money, for purpose and for problem, you can't keep it. You can't keep it, right? It's consumed, he talks about a moth. Or it's destroyed by the effects of weather or time. He talks about rust. And you can't secure it. There are things that can come and threaten it. It could be forcefully taken from you. He talks about thieves. And the problem is, is that you're consumed and destroyed and remain unsecure without security Because your heart is with what you treasure, verse 21. Your heart is in it. There's no way to escape that. Whatever you're treasuring, your heart is wrapped up in that. Whatever purpose you're working towards, your heart is wrapped up in that. You worry about not being able to keep it or secure it, or even if you do, it doesn't satisfy you the way you thought it would. You serve what you treasure, is one of the things Jesus is saying here. You serve all of the labor that you're putting in to gain treasure. In most of the, in the frameworks of where we work, that's money. So you, you're, you're working hard to get money, right? And the problem is, is that 
it doesn't satisfy the way you thought it would, even when you get it. You serve what you treasure. And if you're working with the purpose of getting money and that work that you're doing is to get it, you serve money and money doesn't serve you. You're enslaved to it. Even if money is not an idol, money will often show us where our idols are. What are you working for? What's the purpose? What are the problems that stand in the way that you put your work around to solve? Have you thought about that? We can find out what our heart most loves and most doors and most treasures and worships and rests in for salvation because it's often where we most effortlessly and most easily and most joyfully spend money. So I want you to think about this, and you can write it down in your bulletin and pray about it throughout the week. It's a useful exercise. It's good for the soul. Are you ready? Estimate what percentage of your money is currently going to the following. Christian ministry, church, Christian workers, other ministries, or people outside of your family with economic needs. Think about that percentage. And then think about what that percentage says about your heart and what you treasure. Do that as an exercise this week, prayerfully. Consider it. Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, which we didn't have printed in the bulletin, that you cannot serve God and money. And you have to ask yourself, when you're thinking about solutions for the work that you're doing, your work is a solution for something. Your work that you're doing is a solution for something in the culture of your work. And it's trying to answer, your work is answer to the question, what are we doing about those barriers for, the, for our work culture to get more money? And I want to challenge you with this. If your work is aimed at getting more money, and that money is the purpose of your work, you're enslaved. You're enslaved to it. Let me give you uh, Aaron Callan's words again towards the end of the quote that we read at the beginning. She says, I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. Each year that went by, slight modifications became the new normal. First, I spent a half an hour on Sunday organizing my email, to-do list, and calendar to make money a Monday morning easier. Then I was working a few hours on Sunday, then all day, and my boundaries slipped away until work was all I had left. Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. The Lord doesn't want you to serve money rather than serve him or serve the purposes of the culture of your work rather than serve his purposes. And we'll talk about that in a minute. An exercise, a continuation of the exercise we've already begun. Again, good for the heart. Here are some additional questions to ask yourself as you think about what is the the culture of my work? What are the purposes of that? What are the problems that stand in the way of those purposes being met? How does my work fulfill that? Another exercise or a continuation of the exercise would be to ask these questions. Decide what percentage of your income you will give this year. Make it a sacrificial level. Identify in your own mind the sacrifices that you have to make. Prayerfully determine how to distribute your giving among causes you feel will honor God. Have you thought about how you use your resources? What will honor God with that? And then decide at what intervals you will give and plan a way to keep record of how well you follow your plan. Friends, the Lord doesn't want us to be enslaved 
to our work, to the things that we labor for on this earth. There are systems of thought, there are programs behind that, there are things that drive that, and there's something to mark us as different. And so that brings us to our second point. Do work in a way that has lasting impact and enduring value. If it's not just money you're working for, if it's not just a system of thought or a way that the organization that you're in looks at money and looks at resources and looks at the bottom line, I mean, after money, what? What's the money used for? What's the purpose of the money? You have to ask those kinds of questions. But the Lord says, no, do the work in a way that has lasting impact and enduring value. Do it in a way that has permanence. Verse 20, do it. Work for your layup treasure in heaven. Verse 20 says that there, there's lasting impact and enduring value. It's not consumed. There's no effect of weather and time. There's no threat of being forcefully or wrongfully taken. The way that Christian views the world is this. We've talked about purpose. We've talked about problem, right? We've talked about solution. Let me give you a brief sort of thumbnail sketch of the Christian worldview. It deals with our faith. It deals with our beliefs. But it has everything to do then with the same kinds of questions that we would ask of why we go to work every day and what are we working towards and what are the problems we're trying to solve and what is the solution to those problems. You see? So thumbnail sketch. You ready? The Christian world views the world in this way. The purpose. What's the purpose? God made a good, beautiful world filled with beings to share in this life of joy and peace by knowing, serving, and loving God and one another. Right? Created order. And he's given us a mandate in, in Genesis early on in the account of creation. He says, go and subdue with creation. In other words, work. Bring it under your dominion. Your authority in my name, under my dominion, and my authority as people who represent me. So the purpose is that God made this good and beautiful world, and we're to partake in his rulership over it, ruling as stewards of what he's given us. The problem. If that's the purpose, what's the problem? The problem is that instead we chose to center our lives on ourselves and the pursuit of things rather than on God or on others. This led to a disintegration of creation and a loss of peace within ourselves, between people, and in nature itself. Indeed, Paul says in one place that everything in creation groans under the weight of our sin. Groans. It's falling apart. It's broken. It's, it's tearing apart at the seams. Why? Because we're broken. Because we want to be in charge. Because we want our own resources for our own, resources for our own purposes. We want those things. What's the solution then? If the original purpose is thwarted by the problem, what's the solution? In the gospel, God entered history in the person of Jesus to deal with all the causes and results of our broken relationship with him. Jesus lived the life that we were created to live and then died to pay the debt of sin that was brought about by the life that we actually live, the way that we work, the way that we do things, the way that we intersect life and relationship. By his resurrection, he showed that death is now defeated, and he showed us a future. He showed us a future in his bodily resurrection. New bodies and a completely new heaven and earth. We'll talk about that at the Lord's Supper. One of the things the Lord's Supper points to is the hope that we have, that there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, and a new city of God where all of the nations dwell in equity with full flourishing, shalom, where we stand before God, unhindered by the presence of sin and death and divisiveness and racism and oppression. 
and all the other things that have disintegrated because of the fall. New bodies and a completely new heaven and earth in which the world is restored to full joy, glory, and peace. Now, every one of us, every one of our work places has a culture. We need to question that. As we, as we think about the gospel and how it's explosively true for all of life, we need to question that. And we need to question our own hearts. We cannot leave our own hearts unquestioned about how we're coming at using our resources and dealing with our work. Here's one, one quote from the, uh, the reading this week. By the way, if you're following along in home meetings and you get your home study reading, don't skip this week. It is powerful. Don't skip it. There's a lot of thinking to be done in it. But here's some, of the, uh, some from the home meeting study, from the home uh, study portion. The new, the new community required by the Bible cuts across all cultures and worldviews. Put another way, if it doesn't fit any worldview, it doesn't fit any worldview but challenges them all at some point. When the gospel enters a culture or worldview, it therefore both challenges and affirms. Now that's interesting. Take note of this. I don't know... Think about where, I don't know where you've been in your uh, wrestling with culture, majority culture, minority culture, the kinds of frictions that happen because of the brokenness of sin. I don't know where you're at. But listen to this. It challenges them both at some point. When the gospel enters a culture or worldview, it challenges and affirms. It both retains, retains and rejects. Remember, in the final picture of things, the glory of the nations are brought in. Right? So the things about every nation's culture that we need in one another to bring out more of one another than we can bring out in our own culture. When, it, when the gospel enters any culture, it resolves and completes its partly true story through the gospel. Look, writer Laman Sane, um, he wrote a book about missions. He's a mission, uh, pastor and missionary. And he wrote a book called Translating the Message, talking about what it looks like to talk about the gospel in different cultures. And Laman Sane writes this. He insists that the only, Christian, only, Christianity, only Christianity does not decimate an indigenous culture story, but rather enters into it, cleanses it of distortions and idolatrous elements, and then resolves the unresolved storylines in Christ, in the fullness of who Jesus is. We cannot help but to participate in the worldview of our particular culture and generation, but the gospel changes the way that we look at everything. We are to look at everything, including our work, and decide what to keep as good, what to reject as too distorted, and what to revise, rename, and reshape with the gospel. He's given us freedom to do that. He's given us the authority to do that. He insists that we do it and live a different kind of life with the work that we do and what we're aiming for. So, application. Remember that God is the owner of all things. Remember that God is the owner of all things. And we're just the stewards of his wealth. Uh, in, the, in the Schneider's Compass Group, one of the things that they set up, this Compass Group is about how... How does God look at resources? How does God look at money? How do we get a handle on dealing with those things? And one of the things that it sets up right in the beginning of that course is the fact that we are not the owner. There's a pledge to sign that says, these are the things that I've held dear, but these are the things that I give over to you as yours, God. And I begin to react and interact with these things 
as though they're yours instead of mine, as though they build your kingdom instead of my own. And I'm going to look at them differently from now on. Remember that God is the owner of all things. Also, choose, think about, work at our jobs, work at your jobs in a way that honors God. Not just as a way of accruing personal wealth, status, comfort, and so on. Start to think about your work distinctively as one who has been bought with a price and no longer your own. And then give money and possessions away in sacrificial proportions for joy. Many of you are already sacrificing just to live. Some of you have more than enough and even your principle is growing rather than just living off the interest. So what does sacrificial living look like to you? God calls all of us to sacrifice. It's not just those who have a little or those who have a lot. Sacrificial, God, everything being God's means that we all have to sacrifice. And we all have to relate to our money differently and the way that we work and the purposes that we're working for. So we've looked at, we've looked at those two things. What I'd like to do now is just finish up with the fact, the third point. Jesus wants us not, he wants us to do work in a way that flows out of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. And not the other way around. Remember we said at the beginning that you can do work in such a way where who you are flows out of the work that you do, what you do. But the gospel is upside down from that. What you do flows out of who you are in him and what he's done for you. Verse 21 says, where your treasure is, your heart is. Jesus changes the way that we work and relate to money, changes the way that we look at and do everything. But that is not how to go about that. How do we go about understanding that? How do we go about figuring that out? This is not something that we can just like look to the Bible for in the sense that like, okay, who, who am I going to date, right? The Bible doesn't say anything about dating. There are other things in here that it does say about God's will for you, and you can apply those things and think them out. But guess what? That takes time. It takes effort, and it takes community because you also get blind to your own weak spots and blind spots, and you can't see them. So you need others who can helpfully say, you know, you want to be an Olympic swimmer, but you just don't have the goods. I love you, but, you know, keep swimming at the local pool. I'll swim with you, but you can't do it. You need people who can tell you those kinds of things about yourself particularly with the way that you work. Are you driven? One of the things that was true about Jesus, a mentor of mine once told me, I went into, it was Dick Kaufman, it was in New York. He, I went on uh, from New York to plant churches, and uh, church planting churches, a network of churches in San Diego. And uh, I was mentoring with him when I was your age, and uh, no gray in the beard in those years. And I was mentoring with him, and I said, you know, I'm really numb. I'm really numb. And he, and he started talking to me about that. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm artistic in temperament. I'm pretty tuned in to what I feel. I'm pretty tuned in to what other people feel. And um, I, as I watch movies with my wife, I can probably tear up first. I'm pretty like, but I can also kick butt in kung fu, so just don't get any ideas. Uh, I can, but I feel numb. And the thing that he the thing that we got to as he was listening and he was talking and he was asking questions was that I was working too much and I was driven and I had become what I do and it had started to shut down my body as a result where I couldn't feel the way that God had made me to feel. 
there are special nuances about the way that I perceive things that God uses for his good, and they went away. And he said, you're driven. And he said, Jesus was zealous, but he wasn't driven. He worked hard for his kingdom and for his father and for your salvation, but he wasn't driven for it. There was a time in the garden where he could have called on his legions of angels to kick butt on his behalf. Boom, you're done. You're done here. My boys are in town. And I'm in town. You know, there's actually in John, there's a place where he does that with his little finger kind of thing. But he didn't because he wanted the Lord's will to be fulfilled. And he asked that question, how is scripture, how is the Lord's will going to be fulfilled if I call on my buds and they come save me from this? It was more important, and it was more important to him because he had zeal. He had taken time to develop zeal. You see Jesus going away to pray. You see Jesus spending time alone. You see Jesus spending time in smaller groups where they're eating together and they're drinking together. There's an amazing story about a group of prisoners who got, were uh, taken captive in World War II. And one of the things that happened in this prisoner camp, prisoner of war camp, was the Spirit of Christ went through and began to change the life of these men. And one of the ways that they began to do it is they began to open the world and just open this word, open the Bible, and begin to look at Jesus' character. And what they saw there was a man that they could have a pint with. He wasn't too removed from them that they couldn't get him. He entered into the world where they were at. You have to have zeal in what you do. You have to understand God's purposes in what you do. But I beg you, Jesus begs you, Jesus commands you, do not. Do not be driven. Do not lay up treasures here on earth that will only be taken from you. It'll undo you. There was a, uh, there's another illustration that, you can, that uh, was in the leader's notes of this week's um, home study, the home meeting study, and it reads this way. Working with joy... Uh, sorry, the gospel of Jesus points us and indeed urges us to be at the leading edge of the whole culture, articulating in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics and theology a worldview that will mount the historically rooted Christian challenge to both modernity and postmodernity, leading the way into the postmodern world with joy and with humor and gentleness, and good judgment, and true wisdom. We believe, I believe we face the question, if not then, then, if not now, then when? And if we are grasped by the vision, this vision of the gospel, impacting all of life, we may also hear the question, if not us, then who? And if the gospel of Jesus is not key to the task, all of these tasks, then what is key to them? Friends, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so in rooting yourself, in treasuring up in your heart your relationship with Jesus and starting there, you have no fear. You don't have to fear. You might use money and you might use work in a way that is not 
storing up treasures in heaven, but storing up treasures for earth. You may use money that way. You know what? If you stand in Jesus, you don't have to fear because he died for you. There's no more fear because he died and he took all judgment on your behalf. But if you do pretty well with work and you're a pretty good organizer of your resources and you give things away, there's no room for pride either in the way that you work or use your money. Why? Because Jesus had to die for you. He had to die for you. So what's left? Freedom. Freedom in Jesus to let what you do flow out of who you are in him. You can work a different way. You can have different purposes and have different solutions that you bring to bear. In your job, why do you work towards excellence? Do you work towards excellence? If not, do. Not because a boss is looking over your shoulder, but because you're doing it for the love that God has shown you. You're doing it because he gave everything excellent and poured it out so that you could be brought in from the outside. I want you to think about some more questions that will help you put legs on this as we close. Again, this is from the uh, page 209 of the, the home meeting study, study guide. In whatever you do for work, begin to think about storing up treasures in heaven. I want you to do that through thinking about giving that entails sacrifices in daily lifestyle how much we spend on clothes, travel, home, and so on, begin to examine those things and ask yourself, what are the purposes behind them? Am I trying to store up treasures on earth so that I feel more secure, more significant, more confident? I want you to think about giving radically to others rather than accruing surplus wealth to guarantee a financially secure future. I want you to think about that and examine it in the gospel and in prayer and in community together. I want you to always look for opportunities to help among our friends and help among our neighbors and help among the poor in our church and in our city. Philadelphia is desperate. There's no end of need and there's no room for complacency. What is the purpose towards which we work and live and move and have our being? I want you to think about using our resources not for personal ends but for the protection of those with less. I want you to think about and pray about spending time caring for the widows and the poor and the immigrants and the powerless. I want you to spend time modeling to the world a redeemed society in which wealth and possessions are used to build up the community and not for personal fulfillment. Friends, as we approach the Lord's table, one of the things we do there is that we look back at what Jesus has done for us. And more than that, at the table, he decided to use these means of grace, the very things that we exist off of, food and drink, the very resources that we need to live, he decided to use those simple things as signs and seals to grow us in our faith, to encourage us there, to build us up. He's spiritually present in this meal. And he also uses this to look forward to the hope that we have when he takes all that's wrong with creation and he makes it new and he transforms it. And he does that through us, working now. And he'll do it at the end of the time when he comes himself in victory.
But for now, we live in this overlap of the ages. We live in the already, but the not yet. And the great thing is that he's shown us the future. He's given us his spirit so that we might live a different kind of life towards the things that we do and the enterprises we take on. A different kind of life. A one of freedom and not being bound. And he wants to testify to that in this city through our lives to everyone around us and to all the needs around us. We can't do that in and of ourselves. It's one of the reasons we need to partner. But we can do everything through him who gives us strength. And it's in him we stand. Isn't there victory and joy in that? Isn't there joy at coming to the table then? Isn't there release and freedom? Let's go there now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking you to redeem our work. Work is, the Christian approach to work is not just going and clocking hours so that we can tithe. It's so much more than that. There's so much more of what your truth has meant to us and the way that it transforms us to impact. Yet we are utterly dependent on you and your spirit and the way that you would move in our lives. Give us clarity and wisdom and depth of insight about the purpose of the cultures of our work and where we do and what we do in our own hearts with that. Give us clarity and wisdom and depth of insight and be with us and help us to know you better and help us to root down to you, down into you more deeply, more thoroughly, more confidently with joy and grace and peace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.